Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Fellowship Greenville Student Ministry Podcast. So glad you're listening with us today. This week we are continuing our Heaven and Earth series and specifically looking at the theme of temple throughout the Bible. How temple emerges in the garden and how God repeats this theme throughout the scriptures, even in the person of Jesus himself, and continues on to the people of Jesus, and why all of this even matters in the first place. Let's approach this podcast with humble hearts and learn and worship Jesus as we listen together. Hope you enjoy it. Have a great day. The Lord's Prayer, we're going to pray together tonight. That's how we're kicking off. A little bit differently, I have it on the screens for you, but if you guys will follow along, let's pray together. And I want to ask you guys, um, you may have heard this, you may have heard it a million times, but what if we just took a breath, everyone take a breath, (sighs) feels good, feels good. All right, just take a breath, and in this moment, just approach it with a posture of like, man, I'm not just reciting something out of memory, this isn't just like a repetitive thing, like I'm actually praying this. This is my prayer in this moment. All right, let's throw the Lord's Prayer up on the screens. Uh, Let's pray this together. Follow along with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. All right, now grab a seat. Thank you so much, guys. Amen and amen. All right, everyone, welcome, welcome. My name is Matt Densky. I'm the student ministry pastor here at Fellowship Greenville, uh, as well as Clemson FCA. Just kidding about that. Um, (laughs) That's from my Clemson guys, from my Clemson guys. Um, My name is Matt. I'm so glad you're here tonight. Listen, I want you to know you are so loved and that you have a place to belong in the family of God and right here at Fellowship. We believe that about you and we are so pumped to worship with you tonight. If you have been here over the past few weeks or if you have been here a few times or if you haven't been here at all, let me just bring you up to speed. We've been going through a series focusing in on heaven and earth and looking at the theologies of both of those concepts and really studying the overall narrative that the scriptures present. Um, Because you've heard me say this a million times by now, but I'm going to say it again because repetition makes things stick. Uh, The main focus of the scriptures, the main narrative of the Bible is not that God has created you and you live a certain amount of time and you die, and one day you either go to heaven or hell. While you can reduce a lot of things down and come to that conclusion in the scriptures, the main story is so much more beautiful and so much more compelling and so much more alluring than simply those things. That is such a, uh, um, just a lackluster way to view the main story of the Bible. And so we have been navigating through, and sure enough, we're gonna do it again tonight. We have got a lot to cover tonight. so I don't, I don't know what to tell you, man. Uh, I was joking around with some people beforehand, like, dude, I don't, I don't even know if I'm gonna be able to get through it all. I might have to shave some stuff or whatever. So I don't know, guys. Uh, and I know what you're thinking, dude, like, why don't you just do like part one, part two? Well, I did that and you guys got mad at me for it. So now I'm trying to like cram everything into tonight because at some point we've got to end this uh, series and I, I plan on going this week and then one more after uh, and then maybe one more, and then we're done. Okay, we're done. So I, I can't just keep doing part twos, part twos, part twos. So just to bring you up to speed, if you've been here or even if you haven't been here, uh, or even if you have been here or not, whatever, let me bring you up to speed. Uh, in the beginning, you guys remember this? God created two realms, 
Okay, so in the beginning, God created his space, his realm, the heavenly realm, what we think of as heaven, which is complicated. We've already been over this. It's complicated because the scriptures use the word heaven for multiple things, kind of like the way the English language does with the word love. Like I can say to you that I love bacon, and I mean that. From the bottom of my heart, I mean that. And I can also say to you, I love my wife. And hopefully you know those are two very different types of loves. Like they don't equal each other. They're close, okay, they're close, but they don't equal each other. So we have one word to describe many different nuances. Well, the the Bible uses the same approach with heaven. So heaven could mean literally skies or atmosphere, space. Heaven could mean God's dwelling place, the way that the biblical authors refer to where God lives. Or heavens could mean what we think of as like the eternality of time, where we go one day, this place, right? So it could mean multiple things. But in the beginning, God creates two realms. He creates heaven, his space. So imagine this this space with celestial beings and like angels, messengers, servants of God. And you read the book of Revelation and you see these wild things happening with like animals, hybrid animals, and like all these things going on, right? So like this is God's space, okay? You've got, you've got just this crazy stuff happening. This is God's space. His throne is there. He's magnificent. He's wonderful. The angels are worshiping him. And so he creates this space. And then he also creates another realm, which is earth. Good, okay? What, what the Bible calls earth, or in other words, our realm, man and woman's space, humanity's space. And that space is the world, Um, As we know it, kind of, we know it under a curse, affected by sin. It it was in a much better state when he originally made it. But it's the world. It's it's the skies and the oceans and land and trees and uh, animals and your pet dog. And all of those things are... Uh, belong to earth space, all right? Men and women's space. And in that space, he put men and women. And the book of Genesis, we spent a couple weeks in the very beginning going over this. The book of Genesis is radical in its presentation of what's going on because all throughout the world, everyone is trying to grab at power. You have, you have people trying to uh, overthrow countries and governments. You have people usurping uh, governments. You have rioting and chaos. You have wars and violence, all in this grab for power. And even on a more minor level, you have, uh, you know, governments and politicians and, and celebrities and influencers and everybody just trying to, to carve out their place in this world for legacy, right? And so the way that most people think and the way that most religions operate is that there are different uh, layers of importance to people. And there's people who are really, really important and there's people who are not and they've got a worse uh, cast in life and these are better and blah, 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 blah. And then our faith in the first page of our faith, we see this radical notion that God says, I have placed my image in each and every single one of you. You are reflections of me. I have shared my authority with you to rule and rest with me forever to contribute to the good in this world. The value system is enormously high. Every single one of us, every single one of us has the image of God in them. It is just such a radical notion compared to every other belief system in the world. We are not gods, but we have the image of God in us. There's a high value system. And so God creates this wonderful place and it is a place where heaven is on earth. 
heaven on earth. Literally, it is paradise. And in this paradise, remember I said there are four uh, perfect relationships going on. Four relationships in perfect harmony. Do you guys remember this? Kind of? Maybe? I really have to dive in tonight. We gotta move quick because there's so much, so much goodness in the word of God we gotta get to tonight. All right, so we're doing a little recap. Four relationships, what's number one? You don't remember this. <laughs> uh, take a guess. I'm sure you could get it. What's number one? Our relationship with God. Very good. All right. What's number two? Animals. <laughs> the animals, man. No, hey, you're, you're, you're not entirely wrong. Think broader. Think broader. I love it, Marcus. You're, you're on the right track. All right, creation. Animals included. Hey, Marcos. Hey, animals included, bro. Okay. So I'm gonna put that down here, number four, all right? So we have creation, okay? Listen, I don't have time to write nice tonight. I'm not doing all caps. I'm doing my normal penmanship. Judge me if you want, I don't care. All right, so we have creation, okay? All right, ourselves? Yes. Okay, so our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with creation, and who, ah, each other, each other, all right? So, four different categories. Four different categories. Three is each other, each other, each other, all right? Just look at the first letter and you can figure it out, all right? Each other. So, God has created heaven on earth. And in heaven on earth, in this paradise, death was not a reality. Death was never intended to be a reality in this paradise. And we were created in four levels of perfect harmony in relationships. Our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, our intrapersonal relationship, our relationship with each other, and our relationship with creation. Everything was in perfect harmony, never intending death to be a reality for us. God has placed man and woman in this paradise, has shared his authority with them, given them his image, this beautiful depiction of relationship and pursuit and love and intimacy with our creator. And he gives them a command, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. This is literally heaven on earth. This is a picture of God's original plan. And we've studied this so you guys know what, what happens. This bizarre story unfolds where this talking serpent, this talking snake comes along and begins to talk to Adam and Eve, specifically Eve in the story, and tempts her to eat of a very special tree. It's the only tree that God said, don't eat of that. And we said it is literal in terms of it really was a tree that you really picked fruit from, but it was also metaphorical. The tree of knowledge of good and evil was a literal tree, but it also represented the idea, Adam and Eve, will you trust me, God, will you trust me to define for you what good and evil is? Will you allow me to define good and evil? Or will you reach out on your own and grab at it? Will you seek autonomy and individuality? Will pride swell up in you and you decide that you want to define good and evil and disobey me in the process? If you do that, chaos will ensue. Death will become a reality. And we know the serpent deceived Adam and Eve through three tactics, question God's word, contrast God's authority, or contradict God's authority, and tempt them with God's supremacy. 
Did God really say that? He won't do that. You can be like God. And he uses those same tactics today. And they ate of the fruit and the curse entered the world. Now when that happened, these four things were disrupted. Our relationship with God, injured, severed. It was no longer in perfect harmony. Our relationship with ourselves, messed up. When Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, all of a sudden they realized, the Bible says, you can read this in Genesis 3, they stood in front of each other and they realized, whoa, we're naked, you're naked, what's up? What's up? <laughs> like, this is weird. And so they sewed fig leaves and made clothing for themselves. They covered up. The first thing they did was hide, hide themselves. They came into an awareness that they were naked and they felt shame. Now, I mean, I'm just gonna ask the question here. Did Adam look at Eve in that moment and say, girl, you naked, cover up. Like, ooh, cover up. We don't, <laughs> Tommy, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. Did Eve look at Adam and say, whoa, whoa, all of a sudden I realized you're naked, you should probably cover up. I don't think so. I think something inside of them felt shame from being exposed and intuitively hid, wanted to hide, cover up. And so our relationship with ourselves was now introduced to shame. We began to hide things about ourselves. Our relationship with each other, broken, injured, as a part of disobeying God. What happened? God, God asked Eve, hey, did you, or God asked Adam, did you eat of that tree? I told you specifically not to eat from. What does Adam do? Point, points to the woman. He points to the woman. He said, oh, well, God, it was the woman that you gave me. <laughs> not, I mean, I did, but it was her, and you gave her to me. So really, you should be talking to her. And God looks at Eve and says, did you really do that? Did you eat of this tree? And Eve says, ooh, well, hold up, time out. It was the serpent. That's what the problem is. So neither one of them owning up to the responsibility of disobeying God, both of them blaming someone else, something else, trying to get all the attention off themselves and hiding from God in the process. So our relationship with each other is broken and our relationship with creation is broken. Part of the result of sin, what does God say? Look, you guys are still gonna have to work for food, but now the ground is cursed because you've disobeyed me. It will produce thorns and thistles. You will work by the sweat of your brow. You will have to mow the lawn 20 times a month in the summer in Greenville, South Carolina in the hot, humid heat, okay? Like you will have to really work on this earth to maintain it and steward it well. So creation was broken. Everything was cursed. The perfect harmony was cursed. These realms, heaven on earth became, not heaven on earth, but heaven and earth. You guys remember that? They were separated as a part of this. Heaven on earth became heaven and earth due to, this, due to the curse of sin. So this is God's realm, God's domain, where he dwells, this is ours synonymous in our realm, the realities, I'll write this nice and neat, okay, I'll write these neat. The realities of our world, sin, evil, like this is the language the Bible uses often, evil and death. And that makes sense, right? Don't worry about it, don't worry about it. Just write in your notes, death, all right, death. <laughs> sin, 
Sin is an act of evil and leads to death. And this is the language the biblical authors use to describe our world. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the problem of evil and all the suffering going on in this world. It does not take you long to watch the news, to, to read enough on Twitter or, or uh, to just hear hearsay about things going on in the world for you to conclude something is broken, something is messed up. The world is a broken place. It is experiencing the curse. Sin is evil and leads to death. We are experiencing death all around us in numerous ways, in all of these categories. That's our realm. But God in his grace and mercy and love did not give up. The story of the Bible is not one of, all right, well, that's it. We blew it. We had one chance and we blew it. The story of the Bible is no, God in his mercy continued to make a way to pursue us and chase us and try to have a relationship with us. And the entire Old Testament is a story about God allowing these two realms to come closer together, closer together, closer together. Never quite overlapping, but they're, they're coming closer together. The space of God and the space of humanity are coming closer together. We're gonna continue studying uh, tonight uh, this meta-narrative, the, the focus of the Bible, this story. So tonight, what we're gonna focus on is the, let's see, will it show up am I right? Okay, is the idea, all right, are you ready? Very important word in biblical terminology, the idea temple, all right? Can you read that? Okay. Look, man, I can't, that's, it takes up a lot of room to write that nice, all right? So the idea of temple, we're gonna study the biblical concept of temple. Now, I know what you're thinking probably is like, oh, uh, like temple, like why does this matter? Like what does the temple have to do with anything? And for many of us, I think when we think of temple, we think like, is that a building in Jerusalem right now? Like, is it even there? I don't know. Like, I mean, this is just one of these concepts we know so little about, but for, for some reason, the biblical authors put so much emphasis, like they are just pushing on this word over and over and over again. And so we're going to look at the biblical concept of temple. And I need to confess to you guys that tonight is, is like, we, we are looking I mean, it's really Genesis to Revelation. I'm trying to summarize this <laughs> concept in like 30 minutes. So give me some grace. We are flying and I'm gonna be covering a lot tonight. I want you to keep the Lord's Prayer in mind though because we're gonna come back to that. It's very important as we understand the lens through which the biblical authors began to see. But this is important. Heaven on earth became heaven and earth. We've gone over that every week. Hopefully by now you've got it. So the idea of temple. All right, let's talk, Okay. I, this is about to be a junk drawer sermon. I'm just about to dump tons of stuff out there. Hopefully some of it gets collected by you guys. If not, it's okay, man. Just watch it on YouTube later or something like that. So the concept of temple. God in his grace and mercy did not give up his desire to be with the people he created. He did not give up his desire to have a relationship with us. The amazing truth of the scriptures that we see going on all the way from Genesis to Revelation is that heaven chases us down. The story of the Bible is not one of, hey, God created us to be with him, we blew it, and now there's like all these things we have to do to make it right and get back to him. The story of the Bible is not one of, you need to earn it, you need to do enough, say enough, be enough, do all the right things to get back to God. At the end of your life, there's gonna be some cosmic scale and he's gonna be looking at the side that says good and then he's gonna be looking at the side that says bad and if your good outweighs your bad, then you're in. That is not the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible 
is that God loves us, desires to be with us, we blew it, we messed it up, and God has made a way that heaven chases us down. It is relentlessly pursuing us. Now we can decide to keep running, that choice is up to you, and some people do decide that for their entire life, to keep running away from the presence of God. But other people realize, no, I want to be back in that relationship. I want these things to begin to heal. And so they decide to believe an act of faith, repenting of their sins, so on and so forth. The beautiful overall message of the scriptures is that heaven is chasing us down. So Adam and Eve, they sinned, they messed up, they, they joined the rebellion that was going on in the angelic spaces. We talked about this before too, right? The angels, many of them have rebelled against their creator God. It seems to be numerous times as well throughout the scriptures. I don't, I'm not sure it was just one. There seems to be hints and indications that there were multiple rebellions against God. And now humans have joined this rebellion, but God has not given up on us. And so one of the ways in the Old Testament that we see God bringing these realms together is through the use of temple. Now, temple, simply put, is the place where people meet the presence of God. If you need a definition for temple, you can think of it like a building, but it's, it's more than a building. It's the place where people meet the presence of God. That's the idea of temple that we see in the Bible, the place where people meet the presence of God. Why does that matter? So in the Old Testament, we read this story in the book of Genesis. We, we look last week that evil culminates at the Tower of Babel and then all of a sudden the book of Genesis er, turns real sharply and zooms into this family. Chapters 12 through 50 are all about a family. A man named Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob and his son Joseph. And we track this whole story and God makes some promises to Abraham. One of those promises is the world will be blessed by your offspring. That in the future, someone will come from your family line that everyone in the world will be blessed by. Kind of a hard thing considering Abraham's wife was barren and unable to have children at that time. And God is making this unbelievable promise to Abraham. But as you follow the story, God blesses his wife. She's able to conceive. They have Isaac. Isaac has Jacob and Esau. My epic people, where are you at? You guys should remember some Jacob and Esau. All right. Uh, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is a deceiver. He, he is a manipulator. He's a sleazebag. And then he meets God and he's changed forever and he's wonderful and awesome and cool. Um, so Jacob and Esau. Jacob has a guy named Joseph. Joseph uh, travels to a place. Uh, well, he's betrayed by his brothers. I wouldn't say traveled, more like sold into slavery. But he eventually goes to a place called Egypt. He's thrown in prison there. The Pharaoh realizes he has the gift of interpreting dreams. He pulls him up, interprets his dream, realizes this guy is helpful. And eventually he rises to second in command over the most prosperous nation in the area at that time, Egypt. Joseph eventually reconciles with his family, moves his family back into Egypt. Pharaoh dies, new Pharaoh comes along, time passes. The new Pharaoh's like, I don't know these people, who are they? And then begins to enslave the Hebrew people to do labor to keep expanding the nation of Israel. And then 400 years or so go by and and the Hebrew people have been in slavery that entire time. You ever seen the Prince of Egypt? A lot of things in that movie are inaccurate, but there is some, some good stuff here and there. There can be miracles. Okay, so <laughs> 400 years in slavery, and then God raises up this guy named Moses. 
Hebrew name Moshe, all right, Moses, and he's like, yo, you're my dude, I, I want you to go deliver my people. Moses mur murders someone and then goes on the run for 40 years, not exactly how you start off with God, but this is what happens. God keeps pursuing him, he's like, yo, you're my dude. Moses is like, no, I'm not, I can't do it, I've got a st st stuttering problem, and God's like, no, you don't do this, man. And, uh, and so then uh, God, because Moses disobeys somewhat here, God's like, fine, let's use Aaron as well. And so Moses and his brother Aaron are now kind of these figureheads and they go into e Egypt and they're like, yo, let God's people go. And Pharaoh's like, nah. And Moses like, bet, watch this. And then 10 plagues happen. You guys know that story maybe. And so all the people are coming out of Egypt in what is known as the Exodus. They hit the uh, Red Sea, there's tons of water. And Moses is like, yo, staff up in the water. Pam, pow, water splits, they walk through, all right? This is all biblically accurate. Sound effects and everything. This is what happened, okay? <laughs> Pew. All right? Now, while they're crossing, God gives them some pretty simple instructions. I, I would say so. And the first thing they do is they decide, wow, God has just delivered us from the most oppressive ruler in, in known history at that time. We've been in slavery for 400 years. Um, God brought us out of that, made waters split. Somehow we crossed in a riverbed that was dry. We didn't sink into the muck and mire. We made it all the way across. I'm talking hundreds and thousands of people. And then right as the Egyptian army pursued them, God closed the waters, protected them. And then he's guiding them through the wilderness uh, in the day in the form of a, of a giant pillar, a cloud. The desert in the day was hot and sunny without shade. What does God become? Shade, protection from the sun. At nighttime, he takes the form of a pillar of fire. The desert at night was cold and dark. So how does God provide for them in the night? He becomes warmth and light. Uh, he provides food for them when they need it. He makes bread rain from heaven. He, he blesses their bodies. They're incredibly healthy. He blesses their clothes so that they don't wear out or tatter. God gives them everything they could possibly need to make this journey. And what do the Hebrew people do? I think we should collect all the jewelry, melt it down, put it in the image of a cow, and then worship that. And God's like, are you kidding me, bro? Like, facepalm, what? And so Moses is getting the Ten Commandments during this. They rebel, just like Adam and Eve. They reached out for autonomy, and they joined the rebellion. And now a two-week travel, literally 14 days to get from Egypt to the Promised Land, took 40 years. God used the wilderness to prepare the next generation. Will they obey? All right, during that time, God creates a way for them to interact with his presence. Do you guys know what this was? Not yet, not yet, not yet. Tibble didn't come yet. Tabernacle, hey, tabernacle. Marcos, my man, animals, tabernacle, okay, okay. So God creates a way, hey, but we're getting there, Caitlin. God creates a way for his people to interact with his presence. Because remember, the realms have been divided. This perfect harmony in our relationships are torn and terrible. People are disobeying God, evil is rampant. We are not experiencing life like we used to know it, the harmony with God like we used to know it, but God is relentlessly pursuing us. Heaven chases us down because God wants a relationship with us. He creates a way for people to meet his presence. Now it's somewhat limited, it's not the same as when the realms were overlapping, but it's kind of nice. And it happens at first through this like giant tent. All right, this is a tent. Is that readable enough for you guys? Okay. So it happens at first through a giant tent called the tabernacle, all right? It's okay, just, just take notes, just write what I say, not what I write, okay? It looks like peppermint, doesn't it? A, a giant tent 
called the tabernacle. All right, so this is the front view. Now I'm gonna go overhead, all right? So we're drone shot now, okay? In the tabernacle, there was a tent within the tent. There was a tent within the tent. And in that tent, are you ready for this? There was another wall. There was a, yeah, yeah. And in there, this place was called the Holy of Holies. In there was the Ark of the Covenant, this like box that they traveled with that represented the presence and glory of God and they would store it there. And God created a system in which priests, people who represented God to people and people to God, the middlemen, a system of priests began to serve. God is allowing his presence to be touched and felt and experienced once again. However, however, back in the garden, the warning to Adam and Eve, if you disobey me, death is sure to come. The consequences of sin is death. God prevented Adam and Eve from physically dying, but we experienced a spiritual death. But one of the things that's interesting is when you see Adam and Eve sin against God, and now they're naked and ashamed, and they sew fig leaves together, when God finds them, when God finds them, he says, did you eat of the tree? Who told you you were naked? And they explain everything. And then the Bible says something very interesting, that God clothed them in animal skins. You guys ever picked this up before? That God said fig leaves are gonna tatter and tear out. You need something more sustainable. God clothed them in animal skins. Essentially what's being represented there is that the first animal sacrifice that we ever see due to sin was God using an animal to clothe the humility of men and women. He clothed them with animal skins. Fast forward hundreds of years and God has created a system in which we can experience his presence again. The problem though is still sin. It's still, it's not the world, it's us. We are rebels against the holy God. And yet God has made a way. If the consequences of sin is death, then for us to continue, the, for us to, continue to experience the presence of God without dying, something has to die. And so God enacted a system of sacrifices that, that the, the punishment for sin, which is death, would be rechanneled towards something else for something you did. So instead of you dying, the animal can die in your place for the sins you committed. And God creates a system of sacrifice for people to begin to experience his presence again. But something has to die because the consequences of sin is death. And so there were regular sacrifices, daily sacrifices. There were sacrifices for sins you committed willingly. There were sacrifices for sins you committed unwillingly. I didn't even know I sinned, but here's the sacrifice. There were all sorts of sacrifices. It was tedious. It was thorough. But it at least helped us experience somewhat of the presence of God. But once a year, there was a special day called Yom Kippur. Everyone say Yom Kippur. All right, that's good job. You're speaking Hebrew tonight. That's Hebrew, and that means the day the Day of Atonement, all right? And here's what would happen. On the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, there would be, all right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Why do you, you guys sound so surprised? It's sheep! Yes! I was hoping he'd draw animals tonight, all right? On the day. On the day of Yom Kippur, it was a very special day, happened only once a year. The high priest, the high priest 
would go to a sheep and it had to be a spotless sheep. It had to be a sheep without blemish. Nothing could be wrong with it. It had to be a perfect sheep. He would go to the lamb, he would hold his hand over the lamb and he would pray over the lamb all of the sins of the nation of Israel. This, this uh, figurative, metaphorical representation. This animal is shouldering now all of the sins of the nation. And then he would take that animal and he would lead it far away from the camp and they would release it out here in the wilderness. Gone, okay? And what that sheep symbolized was our sins have been taken away from us. Our sins have been removed from our presence. But remember, there's another sheep. Now the high priest would go over to that sheep, pray over that sheep, all the sins of the nation of Israel, hundreds of thousands of people, all of the sins being represented by one animal. Pray over that sheep, all the sins of the nation, and then he would take that sheep. I need to switch to my red pen. Hey, hey, don't blame me, okay? It's, it's dying because of their sins, okay? I'm not the one. All right. The high priest, <laughs> poor lamb, man. The high priest would pray over that sheep. Remember, perfect, without blemish, spotless lamb. Would pray over that sheep, all the sins of the nation, and then kill it, and then take its blood and come into this holy of holies and sp- sprinkle the blood on the altar or the Ark of the Covenant. And what that symbolized was the shedding of blood has covered our sins. So this happened once a year, every year. Now, quick question for you. I asked some guys, I asked some guys this question before we began the night, quick question. In the Old Testament, how were people saved? How were people saved in the Old Testament? If you're, hold on. If your answer is, I mean, don't hold on because I want you to think this is really good, but we don't have time to actually do the Q&A. If your answer is through the sacrificial system, no. That's not how people were saved in the Old Testament. The sacrificial system was put in place so that people could experience the presence of God, but something had to die due to sin. God spared his people, and so he created this system of animals. If your next answer is, uh, oh, 10 Commandments? Obedience to the 10 Commandments? No. Nobody could obey the Ten Commandments perfectly, so they were without hope. The way that you were, and also, if it was just based on these things, what do you do with Joseph and Jacob and Isaac and Abraham and Noah? Like, what do you do with all them who existed long before this system? In the Old Testament, what we see is people were made right with God by believing, by faith in God, and more specifically in the promises of God, namely the one who is coming one day. We think of salvation as belief in Jesus. Well, they did too. The only difference is we look at it from past tense. We believe in the one who came, and that's how we're made right with God. Old Testament, they believed in the one who is coming. It was faith in God, the promise of God, that one day the curse will be lifted, and one is coming through the family of Abraham who will bless the world. Faith in God, belief in his promises is how you were made right. But God created a system to deal with sin and this was the system. God created a system to help people know how to live and that's what the 10 commandments were for. But it didn't deal with righteousness. That's through faith and faith alone. That's what it's always been, faith, faith, faith. All right, now, 
Eventually, the Hebrew people stopped traveling. They stopped living a nomadic lifestyle. They founded a city named Jerusalem. And then eventually they built a, Caitlin, temple, all right? So no more tent life. We're building a temple, like a real, I guess I'll put it down here, a real structure, all right? Both the tabernacle and the temple were, were littered with garden imagery, trees and, and depictions of flowers and, and plants and everything. Everything was pointing back to this, heaven on earth. Everything was pointing back to that. And again, God's presence was, was dwelling in the temple. People met the presence of God in the temple of God. Heaven is pursuing his people. Now, let's fast forward a little bit. All throughout the Old Testament, God's people are hearing promises that one day someone is coming. There is one coming who's going to lift the curse. There is one coming. There is one coming who's gonna make all this right. There is one coming. They, they heard this growing up their entire lives. We believe Jesus is the one who came and made everything right. So when Jesus comes onto the scene, um, eventually, by the way, let me get my red pen out. Sorry, man. Eventually, this temple, destroyed. Destroyed. You know why? Because the Hebrew people joined the rebellion and they kept sinning, they kept sinning against God. And eventually, the nation of Israel was divided into two. The top part was called Israel, the bottom part was called Judah. Both of them began to rebel against God and both of them began to crumble and eventually the temple of God was destroyed. It was later rebuilt, but never to its full glory again. So fast forward, I'm gonna go to a new, new sheet, all right? Fast forward and you've got this dude come onto the scene, all right? This is Jesus, sub dog, okay? Okay. Get him some. All right, it's at Evan. <laughs> Where is Evan tonight? All right. Flo, what's up, man? All right, so you've got this dude, you've got this dude come onto the scene named Jesus. Jesus was a Jewish uh, carpenter, uh, studied the scriptures, and at the age of 30, became a rabbi, a public teacher. That was culturally appropriate. At 30, you became a public teacher if you were gonna be a rabbi. It was the age of 30. He became a public teacher at the age of 30, and he began to call disciples to himself. Just in case you didn't know, this is, this is one of the reasons I love doing student ministry, because I believe in, in the next generation to do radical things in the name of Jesus for the kingdom of God. The disciples of Jesus were 13, 14-year-olds. They were not middle-aged men. Peter was not 40-something. They were 13, 14. Peter may be 15. He was the only one married. He had a mother-in-law, so we know he was married. So maybe he was a bit older, but these are all teenagers. And that was culturally appropriate in that, in that culture. And so Jesus calls these teenagers to him and says, guys, let's change the world. And in the course of his ministry, Jesus makes some pretty radical claims. One of them is that I am a... Tough. Jesus says... I am a temple, or more specifically, I am the temple of God. Jesus makes this radical claim. In John chapter two, verse 21, he's talking to the Pharisees and he's like, yo, you think you can destroy this temple? He says, this temple, 
I'll rebuild it in three days. And the Pharisees are like, what, dude? It took us decades to build that temple. You're not gonna rebuild it in three days, but Jesus was referring to his body. Jesus would say things in the course of his ministry like, hey, if you've heard me, you've heard the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Other New Testament authors would later come along and capitalize on this and say Jesus was the imprint of the glory of God, his exact nature. The very word incarnation means in the flesh, in the carne, the flesh. Jesus was God in the flesh and he was also man. So remember back, God created a system of priests. Priests represented God to men and men to God. They were the middle. Jesus is called the high priest. He's the perfect mediator, the perfect go-between because he represents God to people because he is God and he represents people to God because he is a human. He is the perfect representative of humanity. And Jesus makes this claim, I am the temple. What does temple mean again? The place where people meet the presence of God. It is a radical claim. Like if we can go, if you can get your mind set to 2,000 years ago and view this idea that the temple, this place was the hub for where you go to meet the presence of God. And it was only in that place, that building, that place. And then here comes this Jewish rabbi with some teenagers and he says, no, 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 I'm that place. I mean, it's like mic drop, and people are like, no, and that's why they wanted to murder him. It's because he would just make these claims. It's like, who, dude, that is blasphemy. Who do you think you are? And Jesus said, I am the place where people meet the presence of God. That is unbelievably radical if we can kind of escape our modern way of thinking. They hated him for these phrases. Jesus claimed to be the temple of God, the place where people came to know the presence of God by interacting with him. All right, now let's connect some dots. One of the things, book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse four. You can go there if you want or just write it down, look it up later. Book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse four says, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away the sins of the people. Whoa, time out, wait a minute. I thought that's what the whole Yom Kippur Day of Atonement thing was. No. The only thing that made you right with God was faith. Everything else was foreshadowing. Everything else was a glimpse of something bigger that's coming. In the Old Testament, people's sins were covered by the sacrifices of animals. A temporary means to redirect God's punishment towards sin, but they were never fully taken away. So remember the Day of Atonement? Two, two, lamb, two, limbs, two lambs, they both had to be spotless. One represented our sins have been removed, the other represented our sins have been covered, blood has been shed. When Jesus comes onto the scene, do you guys remember what his cousin John the Baptist said when he saw him? He points at Jesus and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. John the Baptist is connecting the dots that this is the spotless Lamb, the perfect one, who is going to take our sins on his shoulders and take them away from, from us once and for all. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away the sins of people. What does fully remove our sins, what does fully atone for our sins is Jesus. When he died on the cross, through his sacrifice, Jesus took away our sins once and for all, and he finally, not just covered them, removed them, they're done, they're dealt with. The once and for all sacrifice, Old Testament animal sacrifices had to be repeated every day, every year. It was a constant reminder of your sin. Jesus, one and done, one time forever. It never needs to be repeated. Old Testament, the priests offered sacrifices all day long. They never got a chance to rest. Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice and in that moment said, it is finished. 
is done. It's the only time in history where the offering was the offerer, where the priest put himself on the altar. One and done, never needs to be repeated, fully efficacious for all time, for our sins, past, present, and future. And through that sacrifice, Jesus has finally dealt with sin once and for all. If death is the result of sin, Jesus has put death to death so that we can finally be free of the curse of sin. The broken relationship with God that we experience due to the curse. Jesus, the scriptures say that Jesus didn't just take our sin, Jesus became our sin on the cross. There was a brief moment as Jesus was hanging on the cross where he experienced a separation from God. The world grew dark, and in that moment, Jesus became sin, and God was punishing Jesus as if he was our sin. And for that brief moment, he experienced a severing in the relationship. Every instance that we have in the Gospels of Jesus talking to God, he calls him Father. Father, it's a term of intimacy and endearment. On the cross is the only time we see Jesus use a term more formal than that. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only time he doesn't call God Father. He's experiencing the separation that you and I experience due to sin. Jesus redeems the brokenness that we have in our relationship with God. Adam and Eve, they felt shame when they realized they were naked. Jesus was hung up on the cross, stripped of his his clothing. He was exposed, he was naked, he was humiliated, he was shamed. He relates to us there. Our relationship with each other, severed, blaming each other, hurting each other, sinning against one another. Jesus, when he went to the cross, most of his circle, most of his friends ran in fear for their own lives, betrayed him, or lied about knowing him because they were embarrassed to associate with him at that point. He experienced the broken relationships with other people. Experience uh, the curse of creation. God said, the ground will now bear thorns. What was placed atop Jesus' head? A crown of thorns, the symbol of the curse. Through the death and sacrifice of Jesus, it's not just that our sins have been dealt with, which is amazing and good news, hallelujah, amen. But Jesus is giving us this picture of, hey, the brokenness of all of these categories, I am healing through this sacrifice. I am restoring our relationship with God. I am restoring our relationship with ourselves. I am restoring our relationship with each other and with creation. And we see that picture all in one person, Jesus, our King, our perfect Lamb, who claimed, I am the temple, the place where people come to meet God. But what does this have to do with you? Let's go to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. We're going to read this passage together. Book of Ephesians chapter 2. We have it up on the screen for you as well. You can read along up there. Starting in verse 12. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12. Listen to the language, the beautiful language that Paul uses to describe the effects of what Jesus did. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we, have both, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So you hear the language, right? There's no longer a need for a physical place anymore to access the presence of God. Are you picking up that language? Through Jesus, the temple of God, the living temple of God, we have permanent, uninhibited access to the presence of God. In the temple, remember this holy of holies, there was a a curtain that divided the presence of God from everyone else? When Jesus died on the cross, the Gospel of Matthew says this curtain was torn, not by men, no one touched it. It was torn from top to bottom, symbolizing that God himself is breaking the barriers between his presence and humanity. It is through the living temple Jesus that we have full, unimpeded access to God the Father. That is what the the scriptures are talking about here. We have access in one spirit to the Father. Do you realize that in the Old Testament, in order for them to access the presence of the Father, they had to first get an animal, if they could even afford one. They had to first get an animal and go and have it sacrificed, slaughter it so that something could die, so that they could access the presence of God. But they weren't allowed into this tent, only the priests were allowed into this tent, and only the high priest was allowed into this tent, and only once a year to slaughter this lamb. So most people's access to the presence of God was on the peripheral part of the tent or temple. Do you realize that you have 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, 60 minutes an hour, 60 seconds a minute, unimpeded, uninhibited, full access to the Father because of Jesus? You have more access to the presence of God in one year, one month of your life, the intimate presence of God than many, many people had in the Old Testament because of Jesus. But look, the passage isn't done. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, here we go, ready, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What this passage is saying is that Jesus, who was a living temple through his death, now has sent the Holy Spirit to indwell the people who believe in Jesus, and now we are all temples of God. You and I are places where God's presence dwells. In the Old Testament, we read a story about heaven on earth that splits and ruptures and God creates ways for his presence to kind of be experienced, but something always had to die. It was bloody, it was messy, it was monotonous. You were always reminded of your sin. Your sin was never truly taken from you. These sacrifices served as a reminder of the fact that you still needed sacrifices. Jesus comes onto the scene and says, I am the living temple of God, dies once and for all in our place, fully takes away our sins, deals with them forever, and then sends his spirit now to live in his people. You are the dwelling place of the presence of God. It is one of the most magnificent truths we have in the Bible, and it is one that we read and we overlook because we don't realize the ramifications. You have God in you. The full presence of God, the creator of the cosmos, is living inside of you. He has localized himself into you. 
and you live in a relationship, in a living relationship with the full presence and spirit of God because of Jesus. We are now dwelling places for God by the spirit. We are now growing into a holy temple of the Lord. So here's what this means. The evolution of the idea of temple. Temple is a place where people come to meet the presence of God. Remember on week two maybe, I talked about ancient cultures would use a seven day dedication period to dedicate temples to their God. And God creating the earth in seven days was a symbolic gesture of God saying, the earth is my temple. I dwell with my people, this is my temple. And so in Genesis one, we see the temple of God is among his people on the earth. We blew it, we brought the curse upon ourselves. God pursues us and makes a way. Tabernacle, eventually a temple so that we can continue to experience the presence of God. Jesus says, I'm the living temple. It's a little bit different now. Jesus sacrifices himself on our behalf. Something had to die due to our sin to break the curse. Jesus put death to death once and for all. And now the Holy Spirit has come and said, now you are the temples. All of you. You share the presence of God. And what this means is, For those of you in this room who claim Jesus, who claim belief in Jesus, you are the means by which most people will experience the presence of God. If a temple is the place where people experience the presence of God, then everybody in this room who claims Jesus, who claims faith in Jesus, what this means is in your lives, you are the means by which most people will interpret and define and experience the presence of God. You are the meeting place, you are the temple, it's you. I know in our culture, it's like super popular to be like, yo, bro, come to church with me, and, and we should, and I love that because corporate worship is good and biblical. But hear me, hear me, hear me. We have to understand that before we bring people to a physical location, before we bring people to a building, they're experiencing the presence of God through a person, you. How are people coming to understand God and his presence better through you and your proximity in their lives? This is the idea of being a living temple that the Bible says we are. The question is, do do people know God because of your presence in their life? Or do we do that typical American thing, which is like, I mean, I believe in Jesus because I don't want to go to hell, but like, dude, I'm embarrassed and like, I don't want to be like a weirdo and like be all vocal about it and be extra and blah, 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 and I don't want to share my faith. I just want it to be, you know, personal and individual and private. Like, that is not, we misunderstand something if our mindset is like, I have the magnitude of the presence of God in me and I'm just not gonna tell anyone about it. Like we're not connecting something. We are living temples. Are people coming to know the presence of God through the presence of you in their lives? I mean, that's the question the Bible offers. So let's go back now to the Lord's Prayer, where we started. Let's go back to the Lord's Prayer. And specifically, um, I'll tell you when to pause. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Let's pause right here. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So remember, one of the things Jesus is doing is these uh, realms which were separated, Jesus is bringing them back together. They are now overlapping because of Jesus, the cross of Jesus. We are living in the in-between. One day they will be fully overlapped again, bringing us back into heaven on earth. The book of Revelation talks all about this new heaven and new earth that Jesus is making. 
the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what we are praying and what we're kind of suggesting to God is we understand that we are temples and that the presence of God is in us and that people experience the presence of God through us and therefore would the kingdom, the already but not yet kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus has brought but is not fully here yet, would that kingdom continue to advance in this world not through Jesus and Jesus alone but through Jesus in us? Would our presence in this world advance the kingdom of God? Would your will be done on earth? Would your will be done in Greenville as it is being done in the heavenly realm right now because your presence is in us and people are coming to know you through our presence on earth? In other words, God, would you help us contribute to the good and the creation of good in this world through your presence in us? Would people come to know you through, through the temple? Would, would they come to meet your presence in this temple? Would everybody I interact with today come to know you somehow or experience you somehow through this temple right here? That's the prayer. We're, we're, we're asking the kingdom to come, but we tend to view that prayer as kind of like, I mean, God, somewhere up there in the skies, in the clouds, somewhere I hope, you know, you're bringing your kingdom somehow, through Jesus, somehow. And the biblical idea is like, yes, and amen, that's happening, but it's also like, but we're a part of it. Because the presence of God is in it. We are living temples, walking around this planet for people to experience the presence of God. And then the next verse, look at this next verse in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Let's pause there, look at your Bible. Does it have like a little number next to bread or a letter maybe? Anyone? You guys are like, I didn't bring a physical Bible. <laughs> all right, it's all right. Does it have something there? It should. Give us this day our daily bread. If you look at that and then you look at the footnote, it says this really mysterious thing. It says, or our bread for tomorrow. Some of you guys are like, what? Every time I've ever heard the Lord's Prayer, it says, give us this day our daily bread. I've never heard the Lord's Prayer say, give us this day our bread for tomorrow. That doesn't make sense, right? It could be translated as, God, we wanna be fully dependent on you, and so please give us today what we need for today, physical food. It could be translated that way, but it also could be translated, God, would you give us today our bread for tomorrow? What does that mean? What it means is, would you help us experience today, in this very day, what the future looks like, what your kingdom looks like. Would you help us taste the permanence and eternity of your presence forever? Would you help us taste the sweetness of bread tomorrow, today? And by tasting that, by tasting what's to come, would you help us then bring your kingdom on this earth even more? Like it follows that thought, your, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our bread for tomorrow. It's this idea of like, help us taste what you have in store for us in eternity. Help us experience heaven here and now so that we can continue to be that message bearer here on this earth. The story of the Bible is not meant to cater and I mean no offense, but I, I do want to challenge a little bit. It's not meant to cater to the typical American consumer who thinks that life is all about what they can get and chase their own dreams and live a very comfortable and safe life with no risks and one day die with a bunch of stuff surrounding them. The story of the gospel 
is that you are not king or queen. That there is one king. He's king of kings. And the beautiful thing is he's actually shared his authority with you. If you read the book of Revelation, we get crowns. That's symbolic for the fact that we're given authority. We were given authority in the garden. We're given authority in eternity to contribute to the good of what God is already doing. The beautiful story of our faith is that God desired a relationship with us, shared himself with us. We blew it. He pursued us, made a way to be with us, gave himself for us to save us from ourselves, to redeem the curse, put death to death, and bring us into a relationship with him, and now put his presence in us so that we can continue to be temples of God for this earth and contribute to the healing process. It is never meant to be, it is not designed for us to believe in Jesus and now just sit in our hands and wait till we die. The gospel should empower us with an understanding that we have the presence of God and the world needs God and we are the place where people can meet the presence of God. We are temples. So let us live that out. Let us take the Lord's Prayer so seriously to heart where we say, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does that look like? How can people come to know you through me? How can people meet your presence through my presence? Would you give me just a taste of heaven? Would you give me a taste of what tomorrow holds so that I could, with contagious joy, bursting at the seams, spread this good news of what a life with you forever looks like? Do you have the courage to pray that prayer? I hope you do. I pray you do. The world needs us to do. We are the place where people can meet the presence of God. So, Let's pray together. Father, we love you. And I I don't know. It's so humbling just to think you've given us your full presence. It's so humbling to think you've made us temples where people can come and meet the presence of God. No sacrifice necessary. You took care of that. Sin's already been dealt with. Nothing has to die. Nothing has to bleed. Literally, Father, I just pray that the Spirit oozes out of us, just seeps out of us, that we would be so radically changed by the gospel, that we'd be so radically moved by your Spirit and your presence, that we couldn't help but contain it. Book of Jeremiah, chapter 20, verse 19 or so, says, if I say I won't speak anymore in his name, behold the The word of God is in me like a fire. It's it's in my bones like a fire. I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I can't. Father, I pray that prayer for us, that the word of God, the presence of God would be in us so much so that we just feel like we can't contain it. Would your kingdom come, truly come, on earth as it is in heaven? Would you give us the vision that is not passive on our part? We are partnering with you to usher that kingdom in. We are the place where people meet the presence of God. Not this building us as individuals. So Father, may we be light bearers and presence bearers, spirit bearers, kingdom bearers, as we contribute to the good and healing of this world. With you, Jesus, with you. We ask these things through your name, through your spirit. Amen.